Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Natalie Wexler talking about the education system and how the education system is broken and what we need to do to fix it. Natalie is an education journalist whose work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and she contributes to Forbes.com. She's also the author of The Writing Revolution, a guide to advancing thinking through writing in all subjects and grades. She's also an essayist, lawyer, and legal historian. Today, we're going to be talking about Natalie's new book, The Knowledge Gap. Do you know what curriculum they're using at your teenager's school? Have you checked out any of the research to see how that curriculum stacks up against all the other options out there? The curriculum that a school uses is really, really important. There's a huge range between the top curriculums and the worst ones. If you don't pay attention to the curriculum at your teen's school, you might not be setting them up for success. Let's talk about our broken education system and how to fix it. Natalie, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I just finished reading this book recently, The Knowledge Gap, The Hidden Cause of America's Broken Education System and How to Fix It. Can you talk to me at all about what inspired this book or uh, where did this come from? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, well, I had been writing about education as a journalist for a while, and I was particularly interested in what's known as the achievement gap, this gap in test scores between essentially kids at the upper and lower ends of the socioeconomic spectrum. And what I thought, and what a lot of people thought, is that the real problem is high school, that that's where everything seems to fall apart. We're actually we appear to be making progress at lower grade levels, but then something happens when kids get to high school. And what I found uh, really uh, was explained to me eventually, I, I can't say I figured this out by myself, is that the problems that become so apparent in high school have uh, their roots in the way we teach elementary school. And a lot of that progress that seems to be happening to some extent in elementary school is really illusory and is planting the seeds of failure in high school because we are spending enormous amounts of time on reading comprehension, quote unquote, skills, like finding the main idea or making inferences. And the theory is that kids just need to get really good at those things. It doesn't really matter what they're reading or whether they're acquiring any substantive knowledge, but cognitive scientists have known for a long time that, that that's really not the way reading comprehension works, that in fact, what's really important isn't some general skill at finding the main idea, but 
how much knowledge you have relating to the topic. And I would also say how much general academic knowledge and vocabulary you have. Yeah. That's what's going to be the prime determinant of your ability to understand written text. And so what we should be doing in elementary school is immersing kids in academic knowledge, which by the way, they really prefer to just practicing finding the main idea day after day. And then when they get to high school, they'll have the background knowledge, they'll have the vocabulary to access what they're supposed to be accessing at a high school level. Right now, we are holding them accountable for knowledge to which we have denied them access, which is not really fair. <laughs> So talk to me about the title of your book here says it's about the hidden cause of America's broken education system. Uh, so how do we know it's broken and what's broken about it? Well, there's lots of evidence that it's broken, especially for uh kids who are less privileged um, and who, you know, essentially it's, if your parents are not highly educated, you have less opportunity to acquire academic knowledge and vocabulary at home. Yeah. So it's, it's really, that's the central thing. It's just that that measure, you know, education uh, is highly correlated with class and race. And so it really looks like a class issue or a racial issue, but it is primarily, I would say, an issue of parental level of education. And it's, um, it's so I, I would say even for the kids who are uh, doing well in the system, it's not serving them as well as it could because there's a lot of wasted time and a lot of boredom involved, but especially for those kids who uh, are, are in the more vulnerable position, we have lots of evidence that they are not doing as well on standardized tests, for example. And we no longer really have the problem of standardized tests being culturally biased. We're not asking questions about playing polo or whatever, or yachting, you know, right. it is really, uh, do you have the academic back knowledge background to read and understand those test passages and answer those questions? You, you know, we keep thinking that this is a skills problem because that's, it looks like that's what the tests are assessing. Uh, like read passage that you've never read before and find the main idea. So it looks like it's testing, not knowledge, but the skill of finding the main idea. In fact, if you don't have the knowledge to understand the passage, you don't get a chance to demonstrate your skill at finding the main idea. And it has been said that these tests are really knowledge tests in disguise. And that's the hidden part. We think this is a problem of skills, but it is fundamentally a problem of knowledge. And one thing you point out that I found really interesting was you talk about how high school students are lacking a sense of chronology in terms of maybe confusing things like the Civil War and civil rights movements and when things happen in relation to each other. I thought that really rang true to me in my education, just like learning all of these sort of things um, throughout elementary, middle, and high school that you like lack of firm grasp of how they relate to one another. You're sort of just like all these different things kind of are thrown yeah. at you. And yeah, um, and I'd say that there are two basic reasons for that. Well, three basic reasons. And one, especially in the last 20 years, is we're just not spending much time at certainly the elementary and often at the middle school level on social studies or history yeah. at all. So it's just not being taught. Right. But then beyond that, there are a couple of other issues. I think 
one is that um, there's a general disdain for having kids memorize things and I mean just retain them in long-term memory dates and events and the idea is like that's boring and unnecessary but in fact that is the foundation uh, for understanding things and for being able to think critically and analytically about things is if you have that factual information in long-term memory and then the last problem is that we have long assumed that history is a developmentally inappropriate topic for kids below the age of like third or fourth grade. There's no scientific basis for that. And it is a huge wasted opportunity. It, the longer you wait to introduce history, the harder it is for kids to really get what it's all about and to think about it at the deeper levels that we want them to think about it. And, you know, first and second graders are perfectly capable of understanding stories about history. They are not maybe gonna get every nuance, but you, it's really important to start there so that when they do get to high school or middle school, they have that background to draw on that sense of what the past is. And maybe they've, you know, they did hear about the Civil War and they did hear about the Civil Rights Movement. And so they can tell them apart, you know. But it, we have college students. I mean, there, there are videos on the internet. I um, cite to one of them, at least in the book, of college students who don't know the difference between the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement, who don't know who won the Civil War, have no idea what century it took place in. And, and it's not just the Civil War. Are, they don't know what country we won our independence from. And these are at a reputable college. So this is really a problem. It, you know, it is most acute with uh, kids from less educated families, but it is a widespread problem across the board. You just talked briefly about this earlier, but um, you really use a term that I thought was um, really helpful in the book. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about it. It's called the Matthew effect. Mm. What is that and how does that work? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, it's a general, Matthew effects is a general term that um, I think, you know, sociologists use, but it has a particular meaning in the education context. And the, the Matthew comes from the gospel of St. Matthew and the part that can be rendered in modern terms as the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Right. And what it refers to is if in reading is kids who start out with, well, first of all, two things, like the ability to just read words, to decode words, yeah. um, which is also hugely important and which we also unfortunately do a very poor job of teaching for the most part. And, but also the, the background knowledge to understand what they're reading. So those are the two basic components of reading, right? You have to be able to read the words and understand them. So kids who start out with more of that background knowledge that enables them to understand what they're reading, we have this system, we have this leveled reading system where we let those kids read more sophisticated texts because they can. And that it's not that that background knowledge just helps you understand what you're reading. It also helps you retain new information from what you're yeah. reading because you have more just yeah. space and you know cognitive capacity for that. So they're reading more sophisticated books. They also, it's been said that knowledge is like Velcro. It sticks best to other related yeah, knowledge. So they you also can create have the, more of those links to existing knowledge that just make facts so much easier to learn. Right. So they have more of that other half of the Velcro and so they acquire new information, new vocabulary, and that in turn enables them to read even more sophisticated texts. 
and yeah. et cetera. So it's it's sort of a virtuous cycle for them. But for the kids who start out with less academic knowledge and vocabulary, first of all, they're limited to simpler books because yeah. that's thought to be how they're going to acquire those comprehension skills. They just practice on easy to read books. And so they're being exposed to less information, but they also have less of that other half of the Velcro to retain whatever new information and vocabulary there is in those books. And so what happens is that every year that goes by, that gap between those two groups, the quote unquote good readers and the poor readers gets larger. And by the time they get to high school, it can be quite large and almost impossible to narrow. So that's why it's so important to start early. Not that it's impossible to do anything at the high school level. It is possible, sure. but it's just a lot harder. It's really so much easier if we start building knowledge early. So what does that actually look like at the middle school and high mm -hmm. school level, I guess? Like, what does the gap look like at that point? Or, um... You know, it. I've talked to teachers in high poverty high schools, and often what this focus on reading and math and reading comprehension skills continues through middle school in schools where test scores are low because the theory is we want to boost those reading scores so we need to work on those reading skills um, and they cut out social studies and they cut out science and art which unfortunately those are the subjects that have the most potential to build academic knowledge and vocabulary because they're rich in content so what can happen is kids get to high school without ever having had systematic exposure to history or science, et cetera. And, you know, they're expected to read high school level textbooks. But now I, I've talked to teachers at high poverty high schools. I've volunteered in some, and, and I know there, there are kids at all levels of ability, but sure. it's not uncommon to have kids come into high school who are missing very basic information about the world, like the difference between a city and a state or a country and a continent who can't find the United States on a map of the world or their hometown on a map of the United States. And I live in Washington, DC, and I have talked to teachers here at all grade levels who have told me, and I've seen this, if you ask a kid to find where they live, Washington, DC, on a map of the United States, they'll look around and they may well point to Washington right. State because they have Idea. And it's not because they can't learn these things. It's because no one has taught them these things, or at least hasn't taught them in a way that will stick. Yeah. You know, I've also talked to parents of kids who are, you know, in AP U.S. history classes at fairly elite high schools and say that, you know, they've heard from teachers that those kids, too, kind of lack a sense of chronology, uh, you know, having grappling with just some sort of like what came first, the Civil War, yeah. the War of 1812, you know, right. and, and that's because we haven't focused enough on getting them to understand that in a way that is is sticky. Yeah. And there are ways to do that. There are definitely. And, you know, one of the things that I've discovered is there's been a lot of research by cognitive psychologists and, and neuroscientists on how people learn. There are things that they have come across that they that there are findings that would really help teachers and students, but teachers don't learn about those things in their training or or even on the job. And so um, because of that, their jobs are much harder than they should be. It strikes me 
after reading through all of this about how how comprehension relies so heavily on background knowledge about the topic that you're reading, how helpful it is to read and read like broad variety of subjects and topics and different authors with different viewpoints. And I wonder, you know, I think uh, it's kids uh, are spending a lot of time, you know, on digital uh, media, but, you know, reading is always just such a crucial uh, activity for kids, I guess. How else can we just like help teenagers to to get more background knowledge or um, if we're, or is it just about encouraging them to read more or are there different like activities that we can be doing with them or? Um, you know, I think, yes, I, I, I think it it's going to depend to some extent on the kid and how much background knowledge they're missing. But, um, you know, I think parents, um, if they, they start early, there are lots of things they can do. We talk, we hear a lot about reading aloud to kids, but reading aloud and, and having discussions is what's really important, talking about what you've read and also sticking with a topic for a couple of weeks, maybe, you know, if, if your child is interested in a topic, find several books on that topic to either read together or maybe then the kid will be better in a better position to read independently once he or she has familiarity with the topic. Totally, Once yeah. kids get to the high school level, it's a little more difficult. I think that they're, you know, little kids are just so curious about things. So it's kind yeah, of, right. it's not much of a challenge to get them to learn stuff. I think teenagers are more likely to, you know, say, well, what does that have to do with me? Or, you know, I'm not interested in that. Um, and, but I think the, the, the thing that has the most potential to work, and it's hard for parents to do this, but it's not impossible. If, if a child or a teenager is lacking background knowledge for what he or she's supposed to be learning, the thing that can really help, first of all, the two things. One is some kind of tutoring, which could just be a parent saying, let's sit down. You it, Maybe on something here, let's sit down and figure this out. Like, what don't you understand about the Civil War or whatever? Um, but the other thing that can work on a larger scale, I mean, that kind of tutoring is hard for schools to do on a large scale. And sometimes that is what is needed. Yeah. Um, so the, the thing that can work on a larger scale is teaching kids explicitly in a manageable way to write about the content they are trying to learn. That can be very powerful, but the problem is we also, <laughs> you know, in addition to not doing a great job of teaching reading and building knowledge, we do a very bad job of teaching writing. And it's not teachers, they're not getting trained in how to teach writing. We have really underestimated how hard it is to write, to learn to write. And we've kind of just expected kids to pick it up. But if you start at the sentence level, if that's what kids need, even if they're in high school, and, and also sentences can be very powerful ways of building knowledge if they're designed in uh, carefully. Um, that has huge potential to boost reading comprehension, definitely to build knowledge, to, to fill in gaps in background knowledge, and to foster analytical thinking because it really forces you to connect bits of information when you're writing about something. Yeah, and you do all this research and uh, take different kind of sources of information and put them together and then have to really clarify your thoughts enough to put yeah. it into writing. And I'll just say... 
I mean, what, what is needed is a method of writing instruction that observes two principles. One is start at the sentence level if that's what kids need so that it, they're not overwhelmed by the difficulty. We, we ask kindergartners to write at length, you know, that that's really overwhelming for many of them. And secondly, the sentence level or whatever activities writing you're doing should be grounded in the content of the curriculum, the core mm -hmm. curriculum. And there's only one method of writing instruction I know of that observes both of those principles. And that's called the writing revolution, which is the other book I, I co-authored with a woman named Judith Hockman, mm. who's a veteran educator who developed this method of writing instruction over a long career teaching career. Well, that's one theme that I felt like I um, saw throughout your book is like how much we sometimes um, underestimate what kids have potential and what they're able to do. And there was a few times that I saw that happen in your book where teachers were like really surprised, like they, you know, tried thing, tried it a different way yeah. and really were like, wow, the kids like really, you know, handled it really superbly. And I think we do that a lot. You know, uh, we kind of uh, assume that people or write people off, I guess, um, and don't challenge. Yeah. Them. And we make we unnecessarily make a lot of kids feel like failures. Um, and um, with writing, I mean, sometimes all it takes is giving them enough information so that they have something to write about. I mean, I, I was interviewing a teacher in Tennessee who, you know, her kids, they, they, they mostly came from pretty highly educated families, but um, she couldn't get them to write. They just like hated writing. Every, she said, that was true throughout this elementary school. She said that we have teachers who'd rather jump off a building than teach writing because it was so hard. But then they switched from this, you know, this sort of standard curriculum, which really doesn't give kids much information to one of these newer curricula that's out there that really does go pretty deeply into like this, these were third graders and they were going into the Vikings and ancient Rome. And, and she said, I thought they, they wouldn't be interested in that, but they were fascinated by it. And the other thing she noticed was that suddenly they couldn't stop writing. They had so much they wanted to write about. They wanted to write about all the stuff they were learning. So, you know, sometimes it's just not that complicated. Yeah. I hear a lot of people talking about personalized learning and um, letting people decide for themselves like what they want to learn about. Uh, but you have this great quote in here um, that was, if allowed to choose my own content in elementary school, I would have become an expert in princesses and dogs, <laughs> one critic has observed. Yes. And I thought that was just, um, you know, a, a great yeah. line. I, I, yes, I want to give credit where credit's due. That that was uh, a quote from a woman named Lisa Hansel, okay. who had, somebody I, I know, but she, she I, this was something she had written. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's a great encapsulation of the problem uh, with letting, especially young kids just choose what they want to learn yeah. it, which is one interpretation of personalized learning. But the other problem is, you know, kids can get very interested in things that they don't know about. Yeah. So therefore they can't choose to learn. Well, about. Which is what struck me about, about it, you were talking about with the Vikings. Exactly. Like maybe you wouldn't <laughs> even have been able to choose a topic like that because you don't even have any reference for the fact that these people existed and did these things, but um, you could be very interested yeah. in it. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And I, it's not, I mean, that, that idea that we should just let students choose what they want to learn is one that's been around for a long time, but even before this term personalized learning okay. came along. And it's, it, it does, it's part of this system of so-called reading instruction at the elementary level. Kids are allowed to choose the book from a basket. Okay. You know, choose any book you want, but it has to be, if you're a level, you know, L, you have to go to the basket labeled level L, which is that those books have been determined to be easy for you to read. And they're and the limitations there, yeah, they're choosing in a way, but they're not learning anything. <laughs> so choice has its place, but we really elevated it to a position that, that's too great for uh, its value. So how do you think um, we need to factor that into decisions on topics uh, we mostly need to just take it upon ourselves to introduce kids to new things that they might not be aware of and then give them just kind of a little say and maybe like fine-tuning more or less uh, emphasis here and there something like that well yeah I mean I would say you know there should be time in the school day for kids to spend you know 20 minutes reading whatever they want sure. for fun and, and, you know, stuff that's easy to read. But it, it, right now it, we've made it the sort of centerpiece of the curriculum. And what teachers have told me is that once they do introduce topics like the Vikings or whatever, the kids choose what they want is to read more books about that or more books by the same author. If it's, you know, they say they've read a chapter book aloud and the kids, and, and I've heard of, you know, public kids, teachers going to the public library to satisfy these kids' demands for more books on a topic and more or more books by the same author. And the public library runs out of those books because so many kids are choosing to read about this topic or this author they've, they've been introduced to by the curriculum. We're here today with Natalie Wexler talking about our broken education system and how to fix it. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. So what actually goes on in classrooms may or may not conform to whatever the official curriculum is. To the extent that people were doing anything with writing, they were prioritizing quantity, you know, like let's get kids to write a lot over quality. And that's, I think, the common core writing standards kind of fall into that trap. Yeah. They don't appreciate the difficulty of writing and the need to start at the sentence level. And so they basically tell you, you should have kids in kindergarten writing opinion essays. The common core has been really misunderstood. And I, and I think it was partly because of the way it was constructed, which was we can't mention any content, right? So we're just gonna we're just gonna set out, put out these reading and math standards. And the reading standards, like most state reading standards, are phrased in terms of skills. Yeah, and so in a state right. standard is like, oh, you're gonna, you know, students in third grade will be able to find the main idea. You know. It was, you know, different skills, not just finding the main idea, but connecting a claim to evidence in text or right. something like that but it which is harder but it didn't say what text yeah. and so many many teachers looked at those standards and not just teachers administrators policymakers and thought okay we need to just Let's teach kids teach the skill things. of connecting claims yeah. to evidence in text or 
the skill of reading complex text, but what the authors of the Common Core Literacy Standards really intended right. was, and the only way you were going to be able to meet these standards was that you would build kids' knowledge and have them accessing more complex text with some background knowledge about it so that you would be able to read it. Because if you just hand kids a piece of complex text on a subject they know nothing about, guess what? They can't really understand it. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening.